end our last series reminding ourselves about the fact that everything I taught you was the Word of God. Everything I taught you came, it, it was His Word. And so I think what I will do this morning is, is teach rather than preach. I might get a little preaching in there. But I, I just want to remind you that you have the Word of God. You have it. I know that the world makes fun of us. I know that they think that uh, we can't rely on the old scriptures. But you have the Word of God. There are many evidences to that effect. I, there are a number of things that I should preach on annually as an international pastor. I often fail to do it. It's been three years since I've preached simply on the Bible. I'm not going to preach so much from the Bible this morning as I'm going to preach about the Bible. I do remember my spiritual mentor asking me about 30 years ago. He said, um, you know, what would I give? What would I give for a personal revelation from God? What would you give for a personal word from God? What would you give for it? And he wouldn't let me answer him for 24 hours. He said, come back and we'll talk tomorrow. And of course, you know the answer, right? What would you give? What would you give? If you didn't have the Bible, what would you give for it? You would give everything for it. Anything, everything, all things. For a message from the Creator. Would you not? Would you not? Of course you would. I mean, if you're a thinking person. Right? Of course you would. And uh, so he challenged me that morning. He challenged me. He said, you have it. You have it. You, you've, got to, you've got to study it. You've got to read it. You've got to meditate on it. You've got to live it. You have God's Word. And if you ever have a chance to go to seminary, just go for fun and, and study. And study how God has preserved His Word for His people. You know, I, I kind of went to seminary for fun. The Lord opened the door and I went. And uh, a lot of other stuff happened since. But it's fun to sit under guys that really know what they're talking about, right? So... On our website, you'll see that we have a list of 20 values of ministry, worship, and living together. All 20 values are supported by a text from the Scripture. Why do you think this is? Well, of course, it's proper. If you're going to call yourself a Christian church, it's proper to say that you're a Bible-believing church. It's proper to say that. That's not why we say it. Not because it's proper and because we ought to. That's not why we say it. We say it because we believe it. We say it because we love it. And when you come in here, you're going to hear the Word of God preached. You're not going to hear what the Pope says or the Patriarch or the famous preacher in Nigeria or the famous one in Houston. You're not going to hear that, right? I don't care what they say. They may say some good things. Most of the time they don't. I'm not, I'm not, we don't care what they say in here. All we care about is what Yahweh has said to us. So, on the website, you'll see these words. We affirm the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. The 66 books of the Old and New Testaments alone are the trustworthy, infallible, inerrant Word of God. Now, we consciously say 66 books. Those of you who are somewhat savvy, you understand why the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church have a group of books called the Apocrypha uh, that are not seen as divinely inspired. So, we don't include those. Uh, we don't include those. The Hebrews did not see them as divinely inspired. And so as Protestants, we do not include them in our scriptures. So again, we hold to the 66 books. Again, not because it's proper, 
but because we believe God has spoken to us through those books. As, as you know, and as I hammer, I hammer this a lot because, man, when you leave here, I really want you to be conscientious and circumspect about where you attend church. As we know, a lot of churches, they use the Bible if it fits their agenda and they discard what they don't like. We know this is true. If you've lived any number of years as a Christian, you know that this is true. And I love what John MacArthur says. He said, man, they don't need the Bible. They just make stuff up. Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant, many, many churches just make stuff up. They just make it up. You can't find it in the Bible. But they, they believe it. They preach it. They live by it. They just make stuff up. So how do preachers, pastors, bishops, elders, priests, popes, and patriarchs get away with that? How do they get away with it? Making stuff up. It's because your average person sitting in the pew doesn't really know what the Bible says. So again, I'm going to exhort you. What would you give to hear personally from God? And if you're going to say everything, which is the only thing you can say, then we, then, we have to say, then we have to ask ourselves, how am I handling the Bible in my life? To what degree is it part of my daily life? To what degree am I in the Word? To what degree am I being changed by the Word? As we talked about earlier, people taking things for granted. Too many Christians don't pick it up. They don't look at it. They don't read it. They don't study it. They don't think about it. They don't meditate on it. As I shared with you in our series, I shared this verse a couple of different times, but I'm going to read it again because we all know that's where we are, right? 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from truth and turn aside to myths. So, yes, it's proper for the church to preach from the Bible. It's proper for a church to say that we are Bible-believing, but we do it because we love it. Those of you who are born again, you get it. You love the Word of God. You meet God on the page. There's something, there's something mysterious that happens between you and the Holy Spirit and God. You're hearing God. You're being changed by God. So yes, it's proper. Yes, it's, uh, we're obliged to say it, but we actually believe in this church that we're changed by the Word, right? We're changed by the Word. That's why we say what we say and do what we do. In the Word, we're found by the one for whom we were made. How much would you give for that if you didn't have it? So I hope maybe there's a little conviction here this morning, right? If you study the process of all that God has gone through to bring this to you and put it in your lap, in your language, I don't think we would take it for granted as much as we do. We say that the Bible is trustworthy, infallible, inerrant word of God. Because Peter is right, Jesus has the words of life. So I've always made the joke, man, it'd be great to have 10,000 people in here, or whatever the, the equivalent would be, 100 people of the max. With COVID, I guess it's 50, I don't know. It'd be great. 
But we don't want anyone to be misled or, or misunderstand. You're going to get God's word whether you like it or not, right? <laughs> so that's what we do. We're not about getting a crowd. We're about being faithful to the text. And if, if some people show up, praise God you guys have shown up. Praise God you've gone through a hard text, gone through a hard series together. How can you go to a church that does not preach it all? That offends, that would offend me. I mean, it's almost like a preacher saying or church saying, you don't need to hear this part. Now, how arrogant is that? How arrogant is that? You don't need to hear this part. This might be a little too troubling for you. This is going to be a little too deep or mysterious for you. So we're not going to talk about that. It makes people uncomfortable. We're not going to, we don't want anyone to be uncomfortable. We want people to come here and feel good and leave and, and, and feel so good that they want to come back. That's all we're concerned about. Are people in the seats? Yeah, I think we all can understand that that would not be pleasing to the Lord. So tonight, this morning, hey, it's 17 years of, it's 17 years of tonight, right? But this morning, I want to answer a few questions for you. Questions such as, where did the Bible come from? How did it come to take its present form? Who determined what books would be included in the Bible? Did any books of the Bible get lost? Who wrote the Bible, God or man? Has the Bible been protected from human tampering over time? How close are today's translations to the original manuscripts? Is there more scripture to come beyond the 66 books? Does the Bible really deserve the title, the Word of God? So we're going to look at just a very brief overview. This is more teaching than preaching this morning. So there are three basic views of the Bible. You could guess them all. The view that this church holds, that it is the infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient, trustworthy, inspired Word of God. That's our position. That's the position of any legitimate New Testament church. The second view is that the Bible does contain some truth, but oh, too bad, there's some error in there too. And denominations that hold this view have appointed themselves the arbiter of truth, and they're the ones that can tell you what areas you don't have to pay attention to. It's an error. This view runs contrary to what the Bible says about itself, contrary to the testimony of the apostles, contrary to the history of the church, contrary to the words of the Lord Jesus himself. And thirdly, the last view is that the Bible is just like any other book. It's just like any other book, which obviously is quite a naive opinion. So here's what I want to say to you. This is a big deal for you. And I think you all know that this is a big deal for you. What you believe to be true about the Bible, not only what you believe to be true about it, but how you interact with it. Because that says everything about what you really believe about it. Are you interacting with it? Are you really? Do you really want to hear what your creator has to say? Do you really? Are you really interested in what he thought was important to pass on to you in written form? Are you really interested? It's a big decision for us. It's a huge decision for us. And I will say this. Those of you who are born again, you understand. There is a raging and inextinguishable thirst within the human soul. And only Yahweh can satisfy it. Those of you who've attained a certain age, you understand this is true. <laughs> only Yahweh satisfies the thirst that's in the human heart and human soul. And we encounter Him in the Word 
of God. So it's not possible for me to overstate how important this is. Your view of Scripture, I cannot overstate how important it is for your life and your eternity. I can't overstate it. So I hope that we get that message. There's an analogy I heard John MacArthur, a famous preacher in the States, draw one time, and I liked it. I'm going to share it with you. He says, let's assume your life depends on successfully traveling to a far distant destination. You've never been there. You're passing through hostile territory to present yourself there as holy to a holy king. And here's your dilemma. You have no food for the journey. You have no map, no compass, no shield, no weapon. You're blind. You're in complete darkness and you're painfully aware you are not holy. I love this analogy. That's exactly who we are. If we don't have the scriptures, right? That's exactly who we are. We have no hope of arriving where we need to arrive before a holy God in holiness. We have no hope apart from what we learn in the scriptures. Now, some of this will be, you know, elementary for some of you, but I think it's worth review on occasion. A couple of simple facts. The English word Bible is simply derived from the Greek word meaning roll or book. Scripture is a term used in the New Testament for the sacred writings of the Old Testament. Again, the Bible is a collection of 66 books inspired by God, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. Now, the people that say the Bible is like any other book, most of you have heard this before, <laughs> but listen to this, okay? The Bible, okay, one author, ultimate author, God Himself. But He wrote it in 66 books by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents with a common storyline, theme, and message with no historical or factual errors and no doctrinal contradictions. Is there any other book like that in the world? Can you think of any other book like that in the world? As one professor said, go find me another book like that. And as the student said, that's impossible. That's right, it is impossible. It is impossible. Now, I do want to acknowledge, we've talked about this in men's Bible study. We all know this if we're biblically literate. There's mystery in the Bible. <laughs> there's mystery there. Let there be mystery. You gotta love, if you don't love the mystery, I, I, I don't think you're understanding Yahweh. I actually love the mystery. It's one of my favorite aspects or attributes of God. I love the mystery of God. I do. I love it, right? And after a billion eternities, there'll still be an infinite amount of mystery that I'll be seeking to apprehend and understand and comprehend. He's infinitely above us and beyond us. So don't be afraid of mystery. I love what 18th century preacher John Newton said. He said it perfectly. I will put down all apparent inconsistencies in the Bible to my own ignorance. You know, you hear this sometimes. Well, this seems to contradict that, or this seems to contradict this. You know, you hear people who say they found inconsistencies in the Bible. And I think, I think Bunyan, pardon me, Newton is right. Apparent inconsistencies is just the evidence of your own ignorance. It just means we have, we have miles to go in fully grasping all that God is saying to us 
in the Bible. So the Bible reaches back into eternity past. It looks forward into eternity future. Old Testament, creation, fall, history of Israel, the promise of the Messiah. New Testament, the ministry and words of Jesus, God incarnate, the cross, the establishment of the church, and the revelation of last things. The Bible is called God's special revelation. Who knows why? What is God's natural revelation? Who knows that? It's just what you see out there. It's what you see when you look in the mirror, right? It's, it's God's natural revelation. His special revelation is how you can know Him. It's the Bible. Now, we know He's there from the natural revelation, right? We know He's there. He cannot not be there, right? We know that. But we don't know how to be reconciled to Him. We don't know how. We need special revelation for that. That is what the Bible is called. So what is God's publishing process? The Bible does not expect you to speculate about this. It anticipates these questions and it gives convincing answers. So how does the Bible come about? First principle, revelation. How did God get his word to us? Through revelation. God took the initiative to reveal himself to you and me. This is what he did. In ancient times, by His sovereign will, God chose men to whom He revealed Himself and to whom He revealed the truth of His Word. This is revelation, okay? This is what God... Very simple. It's not complex. This is how the Lord did it. It's called inspiration. And a proper definition of inspiration would be the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit upon divinely chosen men to compose and record without error God's revelation. What this means is that God's divine truth flowed through the minds, souls, hearts, and emotions of His chosen human instruments. Now you know what uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says. All Scripture is inspired by God. So these aren't inspired men. The scriptures are inspired and recorded by the men. Okay, these aren't inspired men. You don't just have an inspired human writing some stuff down. This is God who has inspired the scripture and given them through his chosen instruments. You guys know that 2 Timothy passage... You, some, some texts will say God breathed. It's just God breathed through the man that the Lord has chosen to use. Peter explains this inspiration process a little bit more. 2 Peter 1, 20-21 says this, Knowing this first, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. And here it is, But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. There it is, okay? That's 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. By these means, the Word of God was protected from human error in its original writings by the Spirit of God. Okay? This is what we learn from Scripture. What does it mean? What is a canon? Who knows what the word canon means? Well, actually, I looked it up. The general definition is a measuring rod or a straight staff or a guide or a model. But if you look up canon, it actually will say a collection of sacred writings. So that's in the dictionary. And that's what we have. That's what we have in the Bible. The Old Testament canon 
Complete by the 5th century B.C., okay? It was complete. Jesus affirmed the completed Jewish canon in Luke 11, 49 to 51, when he talked about the blood of the prophets, and he talked about from Abel to Zechariah, okay? Abel, the second son of Adam and Eve, from, from there to the last prophet, Zechariah, okay? So Jesus talks about this. This is the Old Testament canon from Genesis to 2 Chronicles, which 2 Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. The New Testament canon is based upon what is called apostolicity. Apostolicity. There we go. Meaning it was written by an apostle or in the company of an apostle by an apostle's associate or it has the apostle's endorsement. So, you guys know that there are six New Testament books that uh, were written by men closely associated with an apostle and or with Christ. Mark was the penman of Peter. Luke wrote Luke and Acts, the penman of Paul, and James and Jude were the half-brothers of Jesus. Hebrews is the only book we don't know who wrote it, but it's clear <laughs> from its consistency and integrity and doctrine and proposition that it is written by someone either who was an apostle or an associate of the apostle. The church universally accepts Hebrews as a uh, book in the canon. So how did the canon come to its final form? You know, this is where a lot of controversy comes up. And I, I'm always, always marvel at this. I guess I understand why secular scholars don't understand it. But if you have a large view of God, this is a small, this is a small matter for God to bring his word together. Now, you know, if you, again, if you have a small view of God, uh, you're scratching your head. If you have a large view of God, a God who's sovereign, who's controlling, you know, there are no rogue molecules. If you have a, a God like that in your head, you, you realize this is no big deal for him to bring 66 books together in the Bible. But the canon that we have today, the 66 books, were certified by various councils in the 4th century. It's important to note they just didn't vote, oh, I like that book, I don't like this, that book. It's important to note that the church had universally agreed upon the canon, the 66 books, and the councils simply affirmed it. So the councils are simply affirming what the, the universal church had already agreed upon, 66 books, would make up the Old and New Testament. So how about preservation? How can we be sure the integrity of the Bible as it exists today? We know the first thing Satan attacked, right? What, what did he attack when he came to Eve? What did he attack? Anybody remember? As God said, indeed, has God said? So we know that the Word of God has been under attack from Genesis chapter 3 on. How are we sure that we have accurate copies how has God preserved His Word? One, from Scripture we hear this, Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God, what? Who knows? Stands forever. This is just God's attestation, right? It's His attestation. My Word stands forever. I'm a huge God. I do whatever I please. I give my 66 books to my people as a revelation for all time, nobody gets between me and my people, period. 
Now, if you don't think God can do that, then I don't think you believe in, well, you certainly don't believe in Yahweh, and you have some, you know, small diminished view of who you think God is. I would think you have a God with a lowercase g. But Yahweh's not a God with a lowercase g. He is God, not only in name, but indeed, you guys remember Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. God says, for I am God and there is no other. I'm God and there's no one like me declaring the end from the beginning. My purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And you remember how Peter says, talks about this in 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides forever. God is just saying to us, I'm God, you have my word. And if you don't think, again, that he can supernaturally monitor and keep his word intact for you, I, I don't know what kind of God you believe in. It, it, he has to be some kind of pathetic God. So, by his own word, he says, I'm able to do this and I have done this. By his own word. It's right there in the scripture, again, this is a very small thing for him to do. So we have the preservation. How about transmission and translation? The Bible was originally written. How many languages? Who knows? Three. Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, right? Ezra and what's the other one? I have it in my notes. Daniel were written in Aramaic. So here's the thing that's worth the price of seminary. It's called textual criticism. There are guys, all they do, <laughs> all they do is look at old texts and remnants of text. This is all they do. They're textual critics, and they're making sure that we have accurate copies of the original writings. It's a science. It's a science that these men engage in. I'm sure you know this, but the number of existing biblical manuscripts dramatically outnumbers the existing fragments of any other piece of literature. It is the most scrutinized book in the history of the world. The textual critics look at all the existing copies to look for discrepancies, omissions, and errors by comparing text with text and other text with other text. What are the two irrefutable evidences that we have in accurate Old Testament? Who knows? I bet you can guess one for sure. Dead Sea Scrolls. The first one, Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament written around 200 B.C., known as the Septuagint. Okay, Dead Sea Scrolls discovered 1947 through 1956, dated between 200 and 100 B.C. Now, no legitimate Jewish scholar refutes this. Okay? No legitimate Jewish scholar refutes the fact that we have, we have original texts. We don't, we don't have the original writings, but we have copies of the original. They go all the way back before Christ was walking the planet. Again, 
No Jewish scholar would refute that or deny that. That's important. The Old Testament variants through an exacting process of comparing one text to another through textual analysis has revealed that there are only a few minor variants in the Old Testament text. There's only a few, okay? None changing the meaning of any passage, okay? This is remarkable what God has done. Now, obviously, God could have done this in a more supernatural way, but it's your experience and my experience. Is it not that God works in normative means? He uses human means. This is what prayer is about, right? Prayer for God is just a means to an end. You know, we're, we, we, we pray and we pray and we pray and, and we, we, we try to find the will of God and we, we, we finally stumble onto the will of God and we're praying the will of God, right? It's one of God's means to His end are the prayers of His people. A little side note there. But it's astonishing that what we have, we don't have to worry about it. Uh, Jewish scholars agree, we have an accurate Old Testament. You're holding it in your lap or you're in your electronic device. The New Testament stuff is even more impressive. Uh, let me give you some statistics. There are around 6,000 complete or partial manuscripts of the New Testament. 9,000 early translations in Latin, Coptic, and Arabic. This is one blows my mind. 38,000 quotations on the New Testament by early church fathers between the 2nd and 4th centuries, from which the whole New Testament can be reconstructed apart from 11 verses. Okay, this is what the, the, the textual critics have concluded. We have 99.99% reclaimed the originals. Okay, and you, what you do is you take, you take thousands of, you take thousands of copies you just compare them, you know, you get down to where you find uh, consistency. And uh, this is what they've done. And they say that uh, of the remaining one one hundredth of one percent, there are no variants that materially affect any Christian doctrine. Take three years and go to seminary. It's worth it. <laughs> it's worth it. You'll love it. It's fun. It's fun. It was uh, three of the best years of my life. So, any errors introduced by copy uh, or translation can be easily identified and corrected by comparing the copy or the translation with the context of the reclaimed original writings compiled and verified through these textual scholars. No legitimate New Testament scholars refute this, that you have an accurate New Testament in your lap. No legitimate New Testament scholar refutes this or denies this. You have God's Word in your lap. Down to one one hundredth of one percent. But it doesn't affect any material. That one variant does not affect any material aspect of doctrine. Again, this was the, one of the most fun things to study in seminary. So the Lord has done a supernatural thing in preserving His Word for us. Of course, being an international pastor for almost 18 years now, as you can imagine, especially with many young adults, you always get the question, can the Bible be relied upon? And yes, it can be. Of course, it can be. Of course, in a secular setting, they're always, they're always hearing the other side, right? that it cannot be relied on, that it cannot be. So 
The thing I say to people is when I'm asked, can the Bible be trusted? I say, you have to do your own homework. Now, you don't have to. You can either believe what I'm saying or discard it. If you're really interested, you're going to have to do your own homework. Okay, you go do your own homework. And I'll go back to what I began with. Would it not be if you have any question, would it not be worth your time to sort this out? If, in fact, the Bible claims to be the word of your creator, would you wouldn't it be worth your time to sort this out? I mean, again, thinking people. Seems like it would be worth sorting it out and coming to some understanding. Okay, just a word about English translations. There are hundreds, maybe thousands. Some of them are good. Some of them are awful. The one I most highly recommend is the New American Standard, NASB 95. That would be the one that would be that I would recommend the most. ESV, English Standard Version, is good. Of course, King James, New King James is good as well. Those are the main four. NIV's got some problems. Many people love the NIV. It's got a few, it's got a few issues that I don't care for. Okay? You can take that for what it's worth. So is the canon closed? Are there going to be more books? No. <laughs> there, are no there are no prophets to write them. And there are no apostles to write. It's, it's, it's over. The canon is closed. Revelation takes us into eternity future. We don't need any more revelation. We don't need it. And we won't get it. There is no more revelation to come. You already know this. I don't have to say it to you. The Bible claims to be the Word of God. How many times does the Bible claim to be the Word of God? Thousands of times. You know the phrases, right? Thus saith the Lord. You know that famous phrase? The Lord God has said thousands of times, the Bible claims to be the Word of God. Thousands of times. That's somewhat persuasive. In Scripture, the person of God and the Word of God are everywhere interrelated, so much so that whatever is true about the character of God is also true about His Word. So what I'm saying to you is to discount or diminish or ignore the Word of God, that's a very dangerous game to play. And all the guys standing in pulpits, and sadly now women, all the guys and women now standing in pulpits who are diminishing the Word of God, they will stand before the thrice holy God and give an answer. Okay, I wouldn't want to be one of those guys. I would rather sell used cars than than stand up here and, you know, discount the word of God. So. This is a big deal. If you diminish the word of God, you are by default diminishing who God says he is. There's no way around this. There is no way around this. If you seriously, I, I've told you this story before, but I had a young woman tell me one time, I was telling her what the Bible said about a moral issue, and she said, well, I'm just going to have to disagree with God on that. Really? Seriously? Can you imagine it? Can you imagine that? She said it. She was a baptized, she would tell you, born-again believer. That's what she would tell you. No, you're not. Okay? You're not. If you disagree with God, you are not born again. You may be baptized, but you're not born again if you disagree with God. I can just categorically say that. Okay, if you disagree with God, you got a huge problem. It's not me. <laughs> your preacher's not your problem. Your God is your problem. He doesn't make mistakes. 
He says what he means and he means what he says and you better tremble before it. And you better come to the word with some humility. What, what's the Isaiah 66 two with humility, contrition and trembling. So let's just take a minute and I'm done. I want to just take a minute and talk about the implication of this low view of scripture in so much of the modern church. There are two underlying assumptions in this view that are in conflict. It's an, that they're, they're indefensible. They're, they're, they're an oxymoron, right? On the one hand, people will say to one degree or another, the Bible is to one degree or another God's word. On the other hand, they say it contains error. There's conflict here. There's inherent conflict here, right? They've really just denied the godness of God, the sovereignty of God, the omnipotence of God. On the one hand, they say he's God, but on the other hand, he's kind of pathetic because he can't keep his word intact for his people. This logically follows. If you attack the word of God, you have just attacked Yahweh. It logically follows. So do you see that this position is really a commentary on who they believe God is? They say he's God, but he's pathetic. He could not keep error out of the Bible. This feeble God lost control of his revelation. His creatures have hijacked the Bible and have inserted error. And I'll just be honest with you. I don't know. I don't know how you could insult God to any greater degree. And I know people don't say these things, but by their response to the word, this is what they say through their actions. This is what they say through their beliefs and through their actions. What they're really saying is what that young woman said to me. I have to disagree with God on this point. And I, I still remember, <laughs> I was like, I stepped back. <laughs> I was just trying to make a point with her. But in all honesty, it's like maybe another step back. Okay. Just the arrogance and full heartiness to speak like this as a, as a creature before your creator. It's just stunning. It really is stunning. So in my mind, this is not an honest position at all. You have to say either... The so-called God of the Bible is no God at all. Therefore, the Bible is of no value. Or you have to say he is God. Isaiah 66, 2. We need some humility, contrition. And if we need to, we're happy to tremble. We're happy to tremble before this great God. So I've talked about a lot of objective evidences that speak to the, the fact that the Bible is the word of God. I don't have time to get into the historical stuff, the archaeological stuff, the prophetic fulfillment, the manuscript reliability, the internal consistency, the outside writings of the church fathers. I don't have time to get into all of these things. You can go do your own homework, these objective evidences, but there is a subjective evidence. And this is if you're born again, this is what you know. Right. The subjective evidence. We meet God in the word. Our lives are changed in the word. Tell me, how does faith come? Faith comes by miracles. Man, we need to do some miracles in here. Man, we just need some word of faith up in here. Right. That's what we need. How does faith come? Tell me by the word of God, hearing the word of God. That's the only way it comes.
And that's when God does his biggest miracle, right? You know, if I could bring, if I could do miracles, yeah, we'd have a bigger crowd. If people could see physical miracles. But what's the biggest miracle? That you, a rebel, dead in trespasses and sin, is what? Made alive. Now that's a miracle. That's the miracle I'm interested in, right? That is the miracle that I am interested in. And so we meet God in the scripture. I love how uh, I love how John Piper says it. Famous preacher in the States. Listen to what he says. God's peculiar glory shines through his word. Amen. The spirit of God enlightens the eyes of our heart. And in one I love this sentence. And in one self-authenticating sight, our mind is sure and our heart is satisfied. I love that sentence. This is what happens in the believer's life. Justified certainty and solid joy meet in the peculiar glory of God. Now, if you want to do further study on this, I'm just going to share with you John Piper's website. It's it's called Desiring God. He has three messages out there entitled Why We Believe the Bible. It's excellent. And if you need details on that, let me know and I will get them to you. So let me close with this. Paul, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And you remember how Jesus talks about it in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 7, and he talked about the guy that built on sand and the guy that built on rock. Right. So I'll just ask you, what are you building on? You know, the rock is the word of God. So let me close like this. If you call yourself a Christian, but have no ongoing relationship with God through his word. I exhort you, I guess I first have to rebuke you. I lovingly rebuke you and then I exhort you to get serious about your time alone with the Lord. It can't be negotiable. It cannot be negotiable. As you guys know, it gets pushed to the periphery in many, many Christians' lives. You and your time with God, it's more important than your spouse. It's more important than your kids. It's more important than your job. It's more important than your wealth. It's more important than your comfort. It's more important than dinner. I know all of you would agree with that in principle. My question to you is, do you agree with that in practice? Do you agree with that in practice? Because here's how I'll finish. If you're immersed in the Word of God, then you will know how to prioritize the time that you give to your spouse and your kids and your job and your wealth and dinner, right? It only comes through being intimate with God that we realize how to do everything else in our lives and how to prosecute every relationship. So if you have any questions about the Bible, I'm happy to answer what I can. Hey, if you got questions, go do the research. Man, there's a ton of good stuff. There's a ton of good stuff. If you need some help, I'll help you. But go to seminary if you can. It's not that, it's not that expensive. 
if you can take three years off. That's the hard thing. But go to seminary if you can. It'll be a blast. You'll love it. Let's pray together.